Way. Why don't you guys get up on your feet, find somebody, and tell them good Oh, and we will not forget you 
Eight people clapping. <laughs> if you're a comedian, that is not how you want to start. I'd like to thank my family for coming out tonight. <laughs> Sorry. That has nothing to do with Carpenter's Way. Welcome to Carpenter's Way. Good morning. It's winter out there. Again, again. But you know what? We could be up north, and there's lots of reasons why it's better to be down here. The sun, no snow. Anyway, welcome to Carpenter's Way. It's good to have you here this morning. Thanks for being with us. If you are visiting with us, whether here in the room or on the internet, you are a special guest, and uh, we are honored to have you with us. Um, after the service this morning, my wife and I will be up here, and we'd love to shake your hand and, and uh, get to know you a little bit and answer any questions that you may have, but uh, we're just really glad you're here. We are right now in the midst of a study of 1 Samuel. And uh, so we would encourage you when we get there this morning to take your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel 17. And, and we did David and Goliath last week, and this picks up right where we left off. And it's, man, it's great. It's so good this morning. I've been pretty excited about preaching this since Monday, so uh, it may be super long. But uh, I, I, why, are you, why are you laughing? You're like, well, he preaches long. What's super long like? We should be out of here by Wednesday. So... Anyway, there are a lot of things coming up as we wrap up our school year. Everything seems to run about that, but there's lots of activities going on. Uh, Julie asked me to highlight the ladies' spring gathering. That is this Thursday, and uh, do you have anything you want to say? She said after last week she's not allowed to talk. I, I don't know what she's talking about. I'm not embarrassed to have you share up here at all. There's only eight people that were here last week, and they were the ones who clapped. Would you like to share something? Because you're going to say it from there anyway. This is Julie Wilkie. Look how much they love you. They didn't do that for me. Sympathy, I guess. Um, <laughs> no, I, the only thing I just wanted to 
just to remind you that it, um, we are, our gathering is this Thursday, so if you're, you were still thinking about going but hadn't let us know, please sign up on the table. Um, and the flyer is in your worship guide if you haven't looked at it. And there is the address there. That address is in Crown Colony. It gives you a little hint, but most of you will use your GPS anyway, I'm sure. Um, but that's it. We're going to have a good time, so please come. And you'll also notice in there the men's hangout event. We don't know what to call this. I call it picnic, and guys are going, don't call it a picnic. I guess guys don't picnic. So it's a hangout. It's a thing. So um, that is Saturday the 20th, the last Saturday in April. And um, it is, we're going to cook burgers and dogs and, and not, not animals, dogs, hot dogs, which is an animal if you think about it. But information is in there. I need to get done with this quickly before I make a fool of myself. But information is in there. Man, we would love to have you come out. We, uh, it, we, we shoot skeet. Uh, if you have washers, bring your washer game. We play cards. We just hang out. That's what we do. And uh, these, uh, these events that we do with men and women and the Bible study gatherings, these are for the purpose of, of, of getting to know each other, building relationships. In a room this size and with people so transient and, and all, it's really hard to build relationships. So these are the ways that we do that to get to know each other. And uh, we would encourage you to be involved in either the women's event, the men's event. Um, and uh, if you have any questions, please let us know. Guys, to give us an idea of how many are coming, if you wouldn't mind signing up, Steve, put a table out there for us as you walk in. It's to the right. As you walk out, it's to the left. It's along the wall by the office door. Just put your name on there so we make sure we have enough food. And, uh, and, and again, we'd love to have you. Uh, if you'd open your worship guides, there's some other things that I want to highlight. Uh, today is the last day to register, get early registration, which means it's cheaper for our student camp, 6th through 12th, Mission 58. That is a phenomenal ministry camp. Uh, not only do they have a great time, um, but they have a great time serving the Lord. It's, it's, a real, it's real oriented towards discipleship. And uh, so take note of that. If you have any questions, you can ask Mark Dubose or Jeff Bonin. Uh, also, uh, we have a baptisms next Sunday and also a family dedication on May 13th. If you're interested in uh, dedicating your children to the Lord uh, or, or being baptized, uh, we have these dates coming up, so please let us know. Um, and if those dates don't work, we'll do it every Sunday if we have enough folks. We're just uh, excited to see your growth in, in relationship with God. Um, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward at this time. After last Sunday, they did not know whether or not I would invite them up or not. Um, that was funny. I sat down for those who were here last week, and there's all of a sudden there's all this rustling going on. And I said to Julie, what happened? And she said, you didn't call the ushers up for the offering. Gosh, what kind of pastor is that? So y'all did a really good job figuring it out last week. But you're just as confused looking this morning, just so you know. I'm <laughs> Don't quit, though. All right. I'm going to pray for us, and uh, then we'll turn this back to the Lord. Father, we thank you for um, allowing us to gather in this comfortable place this morning and uh, enjoy your word and enjoy music and enjoy, uh, Father, giving and serving and building each other up. And um, We ask you to be with us today. We ask you to guide our hearts and our minds. We ask you to protect. Thank you for the protection you've given us through the storms the last couple weeks. And um, Lord, just, uh, just help us this morning to learn something else about you, something about ourselves. And help us to understand surrender just a little bit more. Thank you again for gathering us together today. We pray you'd bless our times. Now bless those who give, and uh, we will be careful to use the monies given in a very strategic and careful way to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.
the great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. fear to tread invited by redeeming love before the throne of God above he pulls me close with nail-scarred hands into his everlasting arms grips my heart and Satan tempts me to despair I hear the voice that scatters fear the great I am the Lord is here oh praise the one who fights for me and shields my soul eternally. Oh, and boldly I approach your throne. And blameless now I'm running home. By your blood I come, welcomed as your own into the arms of majesty behold the bright risen sun more beauty than this world has known I'm face to face with love himself his perfect spotless righteousness oh a thousand years a thousand tongues are not enough to sing his praise oh and boldly i approach your
God, we are humbled as we stand in your presence. God, if you are who you say you are, if your word is true, and we believe it is, God, then you are beyond comprehension. You are beyond what our mind can imagine. And yet your word is very clear, Lord, that you adopted us for a purpose, and that was to make your glory known, but also for your pleasure. Just blows us away, God. Blows us away that the God of the universe that created everything we see, everything we touch, is delighted in a relationship with us. So God, we stand before you. We boldly approach your throne, knowing that you accept us, you've forgiven our sins. We just declare, Lord, with our own lips that you are great. You are amazing. You are worthy of all of our praise. You're worthy of all of our praise. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. And great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you only. Give life. You give life. You are love. Darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken. And great are you, Lord. It's your bread and our lungs, so we pour out.
but it is hard to remember that. Uh, you feel like you're running your life. You feel like you're making all the decisions. And every once in a while, like this morning when we sing that song, you're reminded that it's really his breath in our lungs, you know. I have this uh, uncanny, this uncontrollable desire to live healthy. And I know a lot of you feel that. And uh, so you, you try so hard, you know. You may exercise. You may eat right. But at the end of the day, it's his breath in our lungs, isn't it? And it's our life. It's, it's everything about our life. He is in control. And I think, I think for me sometimes I forget that I really was bought with a high price. It's, it's not my life anymore. I, I am his servant. I have given my life to him. And boy, it's hard in all the noise to forget. It's hard to remember. It's hard to remember that he is the ruler of all of this. And all of this, he's got this. And I know, I know maybe some of you are upset. Maybe all of us are concerned about what's going on in the world and what's going on in our country or maybe what's going on in your health or your own life but man it's his breath in your lungs and we will soon go home and it will be a glorious day we will the old order of things will be done away with but man the life that we live here in the body we should live we must learn to live by faith for the son of god who loved us and gave himself for us he is worthy of that uh, he's worthy of that. So let's pray. Uh, uh, that song just hit me hard this morning. Father, thank you for that song. Thank you for these songs that, that are written by men and women who love you so much. And they're, they're sharing with us what you have shared with them. And we have an opportunity to learn from them and then sing it back to you. And I thank you, Father, that it is your breath in our lungs. Thank you that you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are the ruler of rulers. And you are our dad. Uh, Lord, uh, we don't often understand what you, what you allow in the world, why you allow it. But we know you're good, we know you're in control, and we will declare our trust in you. Now, let our bodies and our emotions catch up with that declaration. So teach us some stuff this morning, Lord, as we're in uh, 1 Samuel 17. I pray you would uh, show us yourself a little bit more. And I pray, Father, that... As much fun as we have together, I pray that the words of men would fade away so that the words of God could endure forever in this room. Pray for me. Father, I pray that this morning uh, that, that I would fixate on what you want to be said more than what I want to be said. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel 17, verse 50 says, So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone. The next phrase is very important. Why? Because he had no sword. Then David ran over and he pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. And that's what it looks like to fight an unwinnable battle, total trusting 
that God will do his will. And instead of going out and finding a dagger, a javelin, a sword, a shield, the text said that David approached this battle with no sword. David, as we talked about last week, was obviously too young and naive to believe that Bron was more powerful than God. And that, uh, that God would serve his people well by defending himself. While the religious Jews around him were cowering in fear because of the gigantic over-hormoned Philistine in front of them with this shiny, strong armor, David just runs towards him. In verse 45 of 1 Samuel 17, it tells us, David yells as he's running towards him, you come at me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you, and I will cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel, and everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with a sword and a spear. This battle is the Lord's. And he will give you to us. I have, as I've studied this the last few weeks, I have found myself envious of this naive, simple faith. But to be clear, let me be really, really abundantly clear, it was not his faith that won the battle that day. That's not why he won. The truth is, it wasn't the stones inside of the sling and it wasn't his skill. It was the God of this nation that wanted to introduce himself to the Jews and remind them that he's faithful and to the Gentile, the pagans, the Pharisees or the, not the Pharisees, but the Philistines he wanted to introduce himself to them and remind them that the God who delivered the Jews out of Egypt was still alive and well and the reason David was in that battle is not because he was more faithful than anyone else it is true, he was more faithful but the reason is, is because he was the most unreasonable victor that day God picked the lowest, the smallest, the most unexperienced. And yet one thing we talked about last week, and I would encourage you to watch it on the internet or uh, go back because it's an interesting time together. But one thing we learned is the church often re tries to recreate the javelin and the spear in telling you how to defeat the giants in your life. And that is not what this story is about. This story is not a three-step process in overcoming giants in your life. This is the story of God working through a little boy, the most least possible warrior to take on a big, loud enemy. And it was God who defeated him that day. And this text couldn't be more clear. It wasn't just the Hebrew army that underestimated the God of the Jews that day. Because when David kills him, the Philistines panic and run. Remember that they had made an agreement that whoever wins between Goliath and their best warrior, they would take over uh, control of the other nation. And obviously, not only did the Jews not think that they could win, but the Philistines didn't think they could win. Because when they do, when this little boy defeats them with a shepherd's staff and a few small rocks and a God who created them, they run. Verse 50 of 17, chapter 17, David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a, and a stone. For again, it says he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from his sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they turned and they ran. 
Then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. The bodies of the dead and wounded Philistines were strewn all along the road from Sherem as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the Israelite army returned and plundered the deserted Philistine camp. David took the Philistines' head to Jerusalem, but he stored the man's armor in his own tent. The Hebrew army, after defeating their giant, little David, after the defeat, they, they become brave, and they start chasing the Philistines for over 10 miles, it tells us. It, they chase them all the way to the gates of Ekron, leaving a wake of dead and wounded Philistine warriors in their path. Just a side note, where, uh, this area where they're chasing and killing the Philistines, this was supposed to be Jewish territory. This was promised land territory that God had promised to give the Hebrews if they would just keep their word and the vow that they made at Sinai. This would have all been theirs, and they wouldn't have been dealing with the, with the Philistines. But the fact is, they turned their back on God. They continually turned away. And God had promised that if you're faithful to me in these vows you've made, you will never lose a battle. But if you are unfaithful, you'll not only lose a battle, but you'll lose pieces of your territory. And that's why they're in the situation they are. They're not in the situation they are because of the ebbs and flows of life. They're there because they messed their lives up. And let me, let me just say something about that on the side. That God's grace is sufficient for any sin. And it is true that all sin is equal, from gluttony to homosexuality. But all sin does not have the same effect on this life for you. There are consequences. And what we're observing here, and we will observe all the way from here on throughout second, First and Second Samuel and, and the other parts of the Old Testament you study, is the results of these people continually celebrating God when he does exactly what they want after he does it, and then, and then questioning him every other time. On that one more side note. Verse 53, and this is just a historically important point. Uh, it says in verse 53 that David keeps Goliath's army in his own tent and he carries the head of Goliath into Jerusalem. It is believed by many historians that this actually takes place sometime later. It jumps into the future. Why do we believe that and why do I think it's probably true? Because Jerusalem is not yet under Israeli control or Hebrew control. That's going to happen a few years after David takes the throne. He's going to make Jerusalem his capital. But until that point, uh, it, it's not there. So it's reasonable to think that David, and I want you to get this, that David does two things after this battle that are very important. Number one, he keeps the Goliath's armor in his tent. Why would he do that? Because he doesn't want to forget how God uses people that look to him. You know, I think, I think as, a, as Western culture and Americans, we do not, we do not stake, stake uh, memorials in the ground very well. Other cultures do it really good. Jewish culture is constantly making festivals and feasts and, and putting, uh, putting memorials up. And I think we need to be better about that. David would need to remember that God was faithful, that God was the warrior in which you, you defeat your enemies. And I think it's important for us to remember that. Because you know, when you read scripture, you go from amazing story to amazing story. You're jumping in time. But between those amazing stories, there's many days of normality, many days of boredom. We've been talking about this a lot on Wednesday night because in Genesis you see those. Abraham buries his wife Sarah in a tomb and he purchases the tomb. You kind of go through the normal ebbs and flows of life. And the problem is that it leads us to start asking the question, why are there all these supernatural things that happen in Scripture and nothing supernatural happens in my life? And I want to tell you lots of supernatural things happen in your life. They just don't happen every day. That's why they're called supernatural. So when they do happen, 
like when you get saved. When they do happen, when God answers prayer, when He heals you, when those moments come, when God visits you in very special ways, we need to find a place to, to memorialize those moments like David with the armor, to put them in our, put them in our yard. Ladies, get rid of the, get, get, ladies, men too, if you're a gardener, get rid of the yard gnome and put something cool in there. Put a memorial to God's faithfulness in your yard so that when your grandkids or your kids or your neighbors come through, they go, oh, that's really neat. What is it? That reminds me that in 1968, I came to know the Lord. And, it, and when I walk in my garden, it reminds me of God's faithfulness. Oh, that's silly. It's not. We forget. We forget because we live in the moment as Americans and especially as Texans. We're always fighting the next battle. And I'm here to tell you that you've got to remember who won the first battle before you can have victory in the next and how we have joy in it. The second thing is kind of interesting to me, and again, I'm not sure that this is true. I just believe it is based upon history and all. But David is carrying this head. If we're right, and this is some period of time after, I want you to notice that David carries with him wherever they go this dried out huge head. And it's funny and it's nasty, but David does that to remind the nation that there is no giant you will ever come up against that God is not aware of it. He wants them to know in a graphic way that God is faithful to his own promises and his plans. And the two are married. He's faithful to his own thing. And, and, and when, he, when he goes into Jerusalem, he carries it. We need to remember that God is faithful to us as individuals, and he's faithful to us as a family as well. Meanwhile, back at the Hebrew military camp, we jump back in time in verse 55 to what's going on right here. As Saul watched David go out and fight the Philistine, he asked Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this young man? I really don't know, Abner declared. We'll find out who he is, the king told him. Uh, why would Saul ask this? Because that young man, his dad's about to get tax-free living for the rest of his life, remember? Not only that, but this young man was about to become his son-in-law. Do you remember that? all the promises, and he was about to become very, very wealthy, some serious cash. So he, finds his, he sends his people out to find out who this little boy is who just took on this giant. Verse 57, as soon as David returned, now I want you to visualize this, okay? This, is, this, this boy is probably 15, 16, 17. We know for sure he's under 20 because at 20 years of age, uh, they would serve in the military and David and his, some of his older brothers were not serving in the military yet. So if he's the youngest of seven or eight, if he's the youngest, uh, then you have to believe that his three oldest brothers, they're serving, so they're over 20. Probably the rest of his family are under 20, so that puts him around 15, 16, 17 years of age. Remember that when he walks into Saul's tent and presents himself, it is reasonable to believe that Saul didn't know who the one was who were asking questions about what you got for beating Goliath. Remember, he shows up at camp to feed his brothers. And when he does, he starts asking questions. Why is this guy being allowed, this loudmouth out loud to talk? And Saul hears of that, and he calls for this person, this warrior, and he shows up, and he's a boy, and Saul's upset. You know, there's no way you could take him on. It's not that he's looking at David going, you need to spare yourself. He's saying, he, he's shocked. He's shocked at who shows up. So this boy walks in, and he calls him a boy, he says, that guy is a, is a warrior. He's been trained from youth. And David just looks at him and says, I'm going to still kill him. Because to David, he couldn't even, he couldn't even fathom defeat, that God not defeating this loudmouth guy who's, who's defying God. So uh, I want you to picture that he's gone to battle and it's been a clean war, so he's probably sweaty. He's not in armor. He's wearing a tunic. And 
he's probably bloodied up because he just cut this huge head off. And he calls for him. And this is a little funny to me because I'm twisted. But Abner brought David to Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. Okay? He's probably a long-haired guy, and he's just carrying him in. You want to see me? I mean, he's just a kid. I, I can't express that enough. We look at David as, as uh, well, you probably look at me and think of David, you know, like the sculptures. But, I mean, we look at David. We, seriously, that's the funniest thing I've said in weeks. I mean, I could, but, but, but we look at David, and remember one of the, okay, it's not a weakness, but we look at David in, holistically. We look at him as the king and the warrior, but I, I want us to try to look chronologically. I want you to understand that this boy walks in. He's just a kid. He's just a smart aleck kid whose brothers think he's, he's just talking out of his head. I mean, he's just a kid, and he walks in, and the king asks to see him, and he's still celebrating the, you know, why, why does he have his head cut off? You know, if, if he died, and, and Scripture doesn't say he died from the stone. It said it knocks him unconscious. Why does he cut his head off? Proof of death. He takes the own sword, and, and remember that, that the battle, they're fighting in the middle in the valley between two hills, and you've got the Jewish camp on one side or the Hebrew camp on one side, and, and you've got the Philistine camp on the other. There's one way, since there's no screens, to do close-up shots for them to know that their giant is dead, not just sleeping or faking it, and that's by him losing his head. So he takes this sword. Probably wasn't hard. That, spear, that sword was probably 150 pounds. It was, it was majestic and huge and heavy and strong. And he cuts his head off and then he lifts it. And you know what the Philistines do? After they're done wetting themselves, they run. They don't just run because they think that the army can now defeat them. They run because, oh no, their God is showing up again. Remember, we've been looking through 1 Samuel and this story isn't told in, in just a vacuum. Every time they think that they have the, the Hebrews over a barrel, their God shows up. Remember the ark thing? They start dying. Actually, we believe that they got really bad hemorrhoids. And they were dying of, of, of diseases. And so they send it back to the Jewish camp. I mean, it's, you, you have to understand that, that the whole world, remember that the reason that God did the ten plagues out of Egypt wasn't to show his power, it was to introduce himself. If God wants to show his power, he can do it a billion different ways. But he wanted to introduce himself to the world. And everywhere you go throughout the Old Testament, every people group you go to, they go, oh, we heard about your God. Remember, that's why Rahab surrendered to the spies, begged them to give mercy, because we, we're all afraid, because we heard about what your God did in Egypt and everywhere they go. And after generations, the, the Jews take God for granted and think he's left them, and, and, and so do their enemies. But when a little boy beats a big guy, something's happening, and that freaked them out. And it even shocks the Hebrews. I just love it when this boy, this teenage boy who just got his driver's license, walks in. He walks into Saul's tent. You know, he doesn't brush off. He's just a stupid kid. He doesn't brush off. He doesn't change his tunic. He doesn't fix his hair. He can't fix his hair because he's still dragging a ja the dra javelin. Actually, he probably had the spear of, the, of, of Goliath, and on the edge of the spear on the top is probably where his head was. Why would he drop it? He's just going to talk to the king who was too weenie himself to fight. I mean, it's not that he's disrespecting him. It's just that, just that this is just a kid. He's just a shepherd boy. 
who just happened to be used by God. And, and Samuel wants us to know that when Abner brings Saul, he's carrying the Philistine's head in his hand still. Tell me about your father, young man, Saul said. And David replied, his name is Jesse, and we live in Bethlehem. I love this so much. It's gross. It's gross. But I want you to know that God works within cultures and times and history. And, and he, it's amazing. One of the most mercies of God is that he doesn't destroy us all and, and build a cleaner group of robots. He works within our culture. He works within the world. You know, um, Ann and I have been talking a lot about this later, late, lately because she's in a philosophy class. And one of the questions that she keeps being asked by her professor is, why would a God of love allow the Holocaust, for instance, or evil to exist? And I want you to think for a second. For God to restrain evil, whatever you define evil as, it means that we're all robots. I mean, it, it doesn't matter what, well, he could at least not let uh, uh, the Holocaust take place. Well, if he doesn't let the Holocaust, then it, what, where's that point? Where's the point he says, I'm not going to let you do this stuff. I'm not going to give you the freedom to destroy yourself. I mean, the truth is, the reason the Holocaust happened is because God is a God of love. You're like, what? You got to think logically here. Because God's a God of love, he doesn't want us serving out of a gun to our head. Just like the Jews here, just like the Hebrews. He wants them to worship him because they know he's worthy of their worship. He wants them to bow and to serve because he is worthy of that. Because they love him. Paul prays for Philip, uh, the church of Philip, the believers in Philippi and the believers in Ephesus, that they would understand how in love with them God is. The unfathomable wealth of his love that they would grasp. He doesn't pray that they stop sinning. He encourages them to walk worthy of their calling, but his prayer for them is that they would grasp his love for them. When you understand just how amazing God is, what he's capable of and what he doesn't do, you fall in love with him. God wants us to willfully and freely serve him. To be clear, his plan is going to happen. There was no way Goliath was living through that battle. Whether he sends a rock, if God himself picks up a rock or a dog with rabies to bite him, that, that guy was not living. The Philistines were not winning. This was not about one little guy who figured out how to beat a big guy like people say. This was about God doing his thing. And he found a boy who believed him enough to be used by him. God's going to accomplish his task and he's inviting us to join him. I remember as a kid being told by David Jeremiah that God has a plan A and we are plan A and he has no plan B. David Jeremiah is wrong. There are plenty of ways that God can do his work in this world. He can send angels and he's done it before. He can make it happen because he's God. He doesn't need science to make things happen. That's how the world began. He doesn't need to, to make the elements work. He's not in heaven going, okay, Mark screwed up. Maybe we'll find another guy to do it. That's not his worry. He can do it himself, but he invites us to join him. He loves you so much. He's inviting you to join him in his work in the world. Don't run from it. Run to it. You're invited. He's going to accomplish his purpose, but why do we run? Why won't the Hebrews join God? God's got a plan, and his plan is good. But only David is dumb enough to do it. I mean, that's exactly what I see from this text. I keep using the word naive. I want to say dumb. I wish I was dumb enough to believe God in everything. I wish I could just, just dance through life when I, when I read a tweet or I, 
I, I hear bombs being dropped or, or I hear election results that, that frustrate me and I'm going, what's going on? Oh, there it goes. Our country's going to go to hell in a handbasket. A, it already is. And B, it's only going to if God wants it to. What happens if we start a war with Russia? You know, it's going to be fine. The same thing. We're all going home at the right time. At just the right time. Remember it said that about Jesus. At just the right time, Mary gave birth to a boy named Jesus. At just the right time. Oh, why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God, Mark. Put your hope in God. Family, put your hope in God. Don't put your hope in Texas. You can put a little hope in Texas. Man, you can barbecue. That's why I'm fat. But put your hope in God. This weekend, we had a big dinner at our house, and we took pork, and, and we wrapped it in bacon. You know, Jesus has never tasted that. Pork wrapped in pork. Next time we hollow out the middle and put bacon in it. <laughs> Ain't God good. <laughs> oh, man. 18.1, let's, let's jump forward. After David finished talking with Saul, and now I'm thinking about bacon, aren't you guys? <laughs> After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them for David, uh, for Jonathan loved David from that day on. Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And, and Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. This is what it looks like to be right in the middle of God's will, isn't it? Oh man, we should close in prayer right now. If you are faithful to the Lord, this is what your life can look like. I mean, this was a good moment for David as a man or as a boy and, and Jonathan and, and Saul and the nation. God was blessing and the king and his family were appreciative and, and generous because of it. This is what we pray for. God bless me. I, I've got two children that are unmarried and, and, and my son graduates from Moody in a few weeks and then goes to grad school and my daughter's with SFA and I pray God bless them. Bless them. And I just, you know, she's not here this morning so I'll tell you everything that girl touches right now is turning to gold. It's just, she's at a sweet time in her life, kind of like we just described. And, and I, I, you know, I, I'm just so proud of her and proud of God for blessing her. We went and looked in an apartment yesterday she's going to move into with three other Christian girls. She's involved in a church there. She likes better than us. You can hold it against her. I'm mad at her too. <laughs> I mean, you, you know that when she went to SFA, we told her she had to find a church, she, at least for a year. And, and if she wanted to cut that short, she had to write me a paper on why Carpenter's Way was the better church. I really expected the paper. Now I hate that church. We're in direct competition. <laughs> I'm just kidding. She's at Grace and at church, Bible church, and just hired a pastor, and she's so excited. She's going to be a, a small group leader next year, and God is growing her. And, and with three other young ladies who love the Lord, they got an apartment together next year, and they're going to hold each other accountable. If we'd have sent her to the finest private Christian school in the country, she couldn't have got a better experience. Just a, a blessing. That's what it looks like to be in the middle of God's will, right? <laughs> so does this. Even the nation loved David. Look at this, 18.6. 
when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel, can you imagine what a 16-year-old boy is thinking? I get to marry the king's daughter, and these can all be my concubines. What? I'm just kidding. Lighten up, everybody. He's a 16-year-old boy, okay? He's, he's not that great. He's just a kid. Okay, I'll never say that again. These women sang and they danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. Picture them. This was their song. And I, I was going to write a music to this, but I, I can't write music. This is their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. What a great song. Yeah, unless you're Saul. And you all know Saul's heart. I mean, well, verse 8, this made Saul very angry. <laughs> I mean, talking about petty. What's this, he said? They credit David with 10,000s and me with only thousands? He was the one who took on the giant, sir. Next. Look at that line. What's it say? Yeah, this is man. Done. Remember when he was even a younger boy, God had already anointed him as the next king. You think this is a blind prophecy? What? They're going to want him to lead them instead of me now. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. This is also what it looks like to be right in the middle of God's will. The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago. As he had done, uh, as he did each day. But Saul had a spear in his hand, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall, but David escaped twice. Yep, that's what it looks like to be right in the middle of God's will. I, I mean, sometimes I can be so on the other side, remember that this is a tough life and difficult life, that I forget to tell you how wonderful this life is. There is incredible blessings that come from being right in the middle of God's will. I mean, he does. He loves you. He loves the, he loves the lavish blessings on you. But it's also a difficult life. It's also difficult. This too is what it looks like to be in the middle of God's will. Verse 12, because he missed, was missed by those spears, please understand that the reason why Saul's freaked out by David is not just because the people are singing songs, but because Saul was pretty good with a sword. He was probably trained by the best military men around to throw that thing. And twice he misses this boy. I mean, this is some impressive kid. Verse 12, Saul was then afraid of David. For the Lord was with David and had turned away from Saul. If you look to God to lead your life as David did, people who, who do not, even religious people, will either turn to him or turn away from you, just so you know. In 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, Paul says that, that we are, those of us who are surrendered to the Lord, are the aroma of God. To those that are turning away from God, we are the smell of death. To those that are turning to him, we are the smell of life. This is why God invented the church, so that we could gather together and smell good to each other. Some of you need to shower more, but beyond that. The truth is that we gather together because this is supposed to be our safe place. And I want to argue just for a second that that's one of the mistakes of the church today. The mistakes of the church is we're so busy trying to reach the lost when we gather that we forget to encourage the found. The purpose for our gathering is not to reach the lost, although if you don't know Jesus, we want you to meet him in our midst. However, the truth is we need each other because out there, 
out there people are going to throw javelins at you and they're going to throw swords at you and they're going to throw rocks at you and you're going to turn on the news and even the people that you thought were in your political corner are going to mock you for really believing in things like creation and, and the flood and, and a Messiah. They're going to mock you and you're not going to understand that. That's why we come back here so we can look at each other and say it is still well with our souls. It's good. It's good. No matter how cold it is out there, no matter how many storms knocks our power out or our trees out, God's still in control and we're going to be fine. We're supposed to encourage each other from the earliest moments of our life when, when we have babies born and we celebrate together or we have babies die, we mourn together. We're supposed to gather together and remind each other that we don't mourn like those who don't have hope. Yes, we mourn, but we don't mourn as those who are hopeless. We mourn as those who remember that God is still good. And what happened this last week is the Lord took one of us home. Nothing more than that. That's why we need each other. That's why we have these silly events, the women's events, the men's events. It's not so that we can eat more hamburgers. You can find hamburgers anywhere, but so that we can just gather and look at each other's eyes when we're not necessarily studying Scripture and, and tell each other the truth. We can talk about things we like and talk about difficulty, and then we can hug each other. Because in this room, there are Democrats and there are Republicans. There are Bernie voters, because you write me all the time. There are people who hate Twitter and there are people who love Twitter in this room. And none of that matters in this room. None of that matters. There are people in this church who are not here legally. Doesn't matter. That's not what we're about. I remind you that the stage behind me does not have a flag. And every time I say this, I get in trouble with the veterans group. But let me be clear. This room is not the United States of America. This is the embassy for the King of Kings. We gather here together as his children, no matter what your heritage is, no matter what your citizenship is, your real citizenship is the kingdom of heaven. And when we go out there and live for the Lord, there are times of great joy. God heals the sick, and he makes the lame walk, and he inhabits us, and he gives us opportunities. Sabrina Collins was sharing last night on Facebook that she'd been praying for a young man, and he got saved yesterday. We celebrate that. We celebrate that. We celebrate when one of our young men gets married or young ladies get married. And we mourn when one of our older folks or younger folks die. But we do it together. Why is that important? Because we must remind each other that our daddy, the king, is still on his throne. It's important. Javelins will be thrown. Verse 13, Finally Saul sent him away and appointed him commander over a thousand men. And David faithfully led his troops into battle. David continued to succeed in everything he did for the Lord was with him. When Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was so successful at leading his troops into battle. This, this too is what it looks like. Both of these things. To be surrendered to the Lord. Like Joseph, sometimes we're thrown in a pit or falsely in jail. Sometimes we become second in command of the kingdom in which we're living. Or Moses. Sometimes we have our followers, our sheep, telling us we're a lousy leader, and other times they're, they're praying for a redo over a guy like Moses. Or Elijah, who prays down fire from heaven one day, and within a few days, the king and queen are begging for somebody to murder this guy. <laughs> and that leads him to a depression. Or how about Mary, who's visited by an angel and told, you're about to be the mother of the Messiah, which actually means you're going to watch him die publicly. Or how about Joseph, Jesus' stepdad? 
who has to marry a pregnant girl and be ridiculed and mocked for not killing her. Or you can pick any story in Scripture. I mean, we have, as children of God, we have wonderful days, this great adventure we're on, led by the Lord, and not so wonderful days. Maybe like this one, Mark 4, 35. I refer to this a lot, but I want us to look at it as we get towards the end. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and they started out leaving the crowds behind, although there were other boats that followed. That's an important line. Why? Because can you imagine how wonderful it was to be part of the 12? Can you imagine how it felt to be Peter in that boat going, hey, could you back off another 50 feet, please? You're, uh, you're in our wake. We don't want you in our wake. I mean, they were cocky. These guys felt good to be the 12. You know, we don't mind you being followers of Jesus too, but we are his inner circle. How can I make that claim? Because when the people were bringing their children to be blessed by Jesus, what did the disciples do? They turned into a security team. Please leave the master alone. And Jesus rebukes them for it. They feel like they're on the inside and everybody else is kind of on the outside. They were proud to be that. And man, it must have been such an honor to actually be rowing or, or sailing that boat across this great sea that night, in the middle of the night, and they look in the back of the boat and there's the Messiah, the one that they've watched heal the sick and make the lame to walk, the blind to see. They must feel good. He even sleeps in our midst. How cool is this? How wonderful it must have been to be one of his 12. Verse 37, but soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up. <laughs> they wake him up. Rabbi, don't you care that we're going to drown? They were not taking a survey. They were not happy. Don't you care? What a terrible storm this must have been. Most of these guys were fishermen. Most of these guys were probably relieved to leave the fisher business and follow Jesus. Most of these guys thought, are you kidding me? I got out of this business and I'm still gonna die in the middle of the ocean or the sea. I could have died here on my own. I mean, we have watched this guy raise the, raise the sick, open the eyes of the blind, make the lame to walk. Are you kidding me? He's gonna sleep through our death? Have you never felt that? Yes, this is when you nod. It's exactly how you feel. I remember as a kid going, oh man, if I could only have walked with Jesus, I would understand so much more. I actually think sometimes it'd be worse because that makes no sense. You're the one who told us to get in the boat. Do you not have enough foreknowledge to know that there's a bad storm coming? And then it gets worse. They ask Jesus, they wake him up with the question, don't you care we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and the sea to the waves. Silence, be still. Okay, just, just to be clear, he doesn't yell. He doesn't scream. He just looks over the side of the boat and goes, stop. And they all end up on their face because it stops. Like, not, not like this to this to this. It stops. The storm like he actually did it. And then he turns to them and he says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Okay, here, here's where it gets really interesting. You don't want to know what they're thinking? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? And they're on top of each other. Who, who is he? Who is this man? Even the wind... And the waves obey him. 
I wonder what's more scary at that moment, the storm or the one controlling it? Who is this man? To be clear, even the disciples had no idea who they were following. I mean, they thought they knew, but this guy turns out to even calm the seas. His instructions to them were clear. What did he tell them to do? Go to the other side. He did not say, go to the other side. In the middle, you're going to face about 3 o'clock in the morning. You're going to have a big storm. Then I want you to panic. I want you to, I want you to start shoving water out of the boat as quickly as you can. Then I want you to wake me. I'll calm the storm and we'll finish the journey. That's not what he said. He said, keep rowing until we get to the other side. I know what you're thinking. That's unreasonable, Mark. They probably were about to drown. You're probably right. There was no way in this life that they weren't going to freak out and wake him up. Nonetheless, that were his instructions. I get it. They're human. We're human. We're going to freak out. We're scared when we get diagnosed with cancer. Whatever it is, we get scared. But I want you to remember that his instructions to them were still the same. Keep rowing. Go to the other side. We've got ministry over there. I'm not saying they shouldn't have been afraid. I'm simply saying that we just really don't know who it is we're dealing with. We, we really, really don't. If we did, a brown spot on our face wouldn't be scary. Because we would understand that live or die, he is the king. You see, just like the Jews standing on the hill, watching little David, who was too naive to know that he couldn't beat a Goliath, we're so busy looking at the science around us to believe the God who created the science. In Jesus' own words, he said to these boys in John 16, here on earth you're going to have many trials and sorrows. Take heart, because I've overcome the world. Or how about in James 1, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. This doesn't just say endure, it says count it joy. I'm supposed to be excited when spears are thrown at me? If you understand the big picture, you can find joy. Joy isn't like happy. You don't sing songs about it. It's actually knowing that God is doing his work in you. What if God, as, as he uses you to accomplish his plan in the world around you, is also introducing himself to us, changing us, showing others himself through us as we naively trust him, both in the good and the bad moments of our lives? God wants us to believe him, to put 100% of our trust in him when people are celebrating with us or when they're throwing spears at us. He wants us to celebrate him in both times. Psalm 42. This is the psalm of a, of a psalmist who is struggling. You'll see why. As the deer longs for strings of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? Day and night I have only tears for food. While my enemies continually taunt me, saying, Where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking. As I remember how it used to be, I walked among the crowds of worshipers, leading a great possession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sound of great celebration. Why am I discouraged? Why am I, is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Now I am deeply discouraged, but I will remember you. Even from the distant Mount Hermon, the source of the Jordan, from the land of Mount Miser, 
I hear the tumult of the raging seas as your waves and surging tides sweep over me. But each day the Lord pours his unfailing love on me and through each night I will sing his songs, praying to God who gives me life. Oh God, my rock, I cry. Why have you forgotten me? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? Their taunts break my bones, they scoff. Where is this God of yours? Do you feel it? This is a psalmist with confusion. This is a heart that's torn. I know in my head that God is faithful, but my heart is weak. And he goes from, where are you? Hey, where's this God of yours to God, you're faithful. You are my rock. Verse 11, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my savior and my God. There will be seasons in our lives living in the will of God when everything turns, like, turns to gold for us. Where, where even people write songs about you. Chad will probably write a song about you during that season. Everybody will think you are so amazing and some people will hate you for it. But there will also be seasons of great discouragement and fear. It's just how this game is played. And it doesn't just happen to the church, okay? It happens to the lost as well. There are good seasons and there are bad seasons. The thing we have is the king of kings, the sovereign one on our side. Where do they go? to the bottle, to another love relationship. They divorce the one or the people that they think are a problem in their life, not us. We run to God. That's why the world is a mess, just so you know. That's why chaos reigns. That's why it reigns, because they're continually divorcing themselves from, from, from reason and from thought, because they want more of what they thought was making them happy. More drugs, more sex, more whatever. More whatever fills your gut. Eternal life. There's still, you know, People keep saying that we're really close to having a pill that can keep us alive for 900 years. I want you to think about that. Do you really want to live 900 years? I mean, yes and no, but it's, it's just, they're longing, it's lust. Find a rush. There'll be seasons of fear and discouragement. You need to pray the prayer of the redeemed from Psalm 42. I will put my hope in God. I will praise his name again. Not because I feel like it or because the music's good, but because that is the right thing to do. Because I know in my head, even if my heart does not know it at the moment, that God is good, my Savior and my God. And by the way, that's what a lot of the next few chapters look like for David. He is so heartbroken and he can't figure out what he did wrong. Why does he hate me so much? Boy, you're going to hear a lot of your heart in that. Why do these people hate us? They hate you because you smell like death to them. We need to stink together a little bit more, though, because we need each other. We need to remind each other that it is well with our souls because our daddy is still the king of kings. Then why does he allow bad things to happen? Because if he didn't, we would all be robots and it wouldn't be love. It's true. I know that's philosophical and I know it makes your head spin, but you've got to think about it. If he limits the evil that men commit, he is not a loving God. He wants us to worship and love him and run to him because we would run nowhere else. Even if that means they run away. That's part of love. Why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in. Lord Jesus, we love you. We just don't trust you enough, so help us trust you more. Even David's going to struggle. It was not fun 
to be hailed as a hero and then have people celebrate you and have the king as a result throw spears at you. It was not fun to have a good day of ministry with you, get in a boat, let you sleep in the back while they rowed or put the sails up and then freak out because they're going to drown. That was not fun. It wasn't even fun for you to solve the problem and look at them and say, why don't you trust me yet? But the truth is they had no clue who you really were. I mean, they knew you were God. They knew you were the Savior. They knew you could make the sick well, but they didn't know you could save their lives. So God, we know you can save our life. We just don't know if you want to. So help us trust you even if we don't. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Bible study starts in about 10 minutes. If you're visiting, I'd love to shake your hand. Thanks for being here this morning, everybody.